cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com on a Thursday morning. It's time for the Burning Platform, which, of course, is brought to you by Nando's. Nando's, of course, not only uh, very good at making the greatest meal and the greatest chicken in the world, and it really is in the world. A friend of mine lives in America, and he said one of his favorite things to do is he will actually go to Washington unnecessarily and Chicago just to stop at the Nando's because he misses Nando's so much. And he doesn't live anywhere near Washington or Chicago. But they don't just do that well. They also are not scared to be associated with whatever is going on in the news. You've seen plenty of their advertising. It is cheeky. It is clever. And we hope that the burning platform is cheeky and clever every week. We get to unpack all of the current affairs and all of the things that are going on in the world around us, try to make sense of them too. And the burning platform today is no different to all the others where we try to do that. Uh, Last week, we had a bumper episode. We had a a, a bitter old trade unionist on, and he complained bitterly, as a bitter old trade unionist would, about how rich all his friends were and how, unfortunately for him, he wasn't also rich. Some of his friends being our current president and uh, people like Marcel Golding and Zuelinzi Mavavi and many of the others who've done extremely well. And he hasn't. So I would also be bitter and twisted if that was me. Let's talk to Gabriel Krauser this morning. Well, Pums, you know, if if you look around and you see other people are so so wealthy and they've become such capitalist sellouts, uh, you know, to 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 I kind of paraphrase him, I'd also be annoyed. Anyway. This morning, we're talking to Gabriel Krause. He's no stranger to the Burning Platform. He is from the Institute of Race Relations, and he does some really interesting things there. Um, he, among other things, goes into the, uh, the, the, the various parts of South Africa and asks people questions that make the rest of us uh, sit up and think, and hopefully will also make the rest of us get a, li- a slightly better grip on what's actually going on and how people feel about things in uh, the polity. So, Gabriel, nice to see you again. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me. And how's it? How's it? But Pumi, so, Pumi, Pumi and I were thinking about this. Um, I saw an article of yours that uh, was published the other day about critical race theory. It's all the – that is absolutely – it's all the um, – the, the, what's the, the term that they use? It's, uh, it's all the – I can't think of it now. It's such a, a, a – it's, it's, a, it's a massive trending topic. For want of it's a much all more, the rage all the right rage, now. Thank you, rage. Jesus, why didn't <clears> I think of that word? <throat> so it's all the rage in America, um, critical race theory. There are people who are publishing books about it. There are people, a whole lot of terribly guilty white people who are reading all those books, and then they go on the internet and they say, I'm doing the work, and they show that they're reading this book about critical race theory by Ibram Kendi, or uh, there's the one called White Fragility, and it's a massive, massive industry in America. Pe- corporations are hiring these people to help explain how race and, and critical race theory is an important part of dealing with shit in America. What is your finding, because you've published this report called Critical Race Theory and Race-Based Policy, A Threat to Liberal Democracy. What have you found in speaking to ordinary South Africans? Okay, so two caveats. The one is that this report, uh, which you can find on the IRR site, is by Anthea Jeffrey, and it is 30 pages long. It's a serious, in-depth, deep dive, and Dr. Anthea Jeffrey is a legal scholar uh, who's trained here and abroad uh, in the UK, and the reason that matters is because critical race theory emerged as a legal theory 
uh, really crystallized in 1989 at the first critical race theory convention, but dating, you know, it, it comes back from the Frankfurt School, which took some Marxist uh, mm. ideas and some good ideas, like you need first person narratives to make sense of the numbers. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll try and do a bit of that here too. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You're right. It was something that had been growing in America's universities. And I experienced some of this when I studied in America, I studied critical race theory for a summer in Ireland through Princeton university. And it was kind of trendy amongst hip youth, mm -hmm. uh, but it hadn't gone mainstream and hadn't gone corporate and it hadn't gone political in the same way that it is today. As Anthony Jeffrey puts it, this theory has now been injected into the citadels of power. So we mm. see critical race theory being espoused very much by Joe Biden's administration. Mm -hmm. uh, we see very much a takeover of critical race theory in the mainstream, uh, in many of the mainstream American newspapers. What we, that's the first caveat. The second caveat is that, yes, I am a, an investigative journalist, and that means that sometimes when I can, I go out into the countryside, into rural South Africa, into urban South Africa, and right. ask people what they think. I try and figure out things about stories. But that's going to produce anecdotes. Mm -hmm. It's not going to produce data. To right. get data, you need to ask thousands of people. So mm -hmm. we asked 2,500 people, demographically representative sample. And we didn't ask them ourselves because we have a clear ideological view. Right. We are non-racialists. That's sure. what we stand for. What's on the box is what's in the box. Mm -hmm. So we hired an independent company, Mark Data, which has been in the business for 30 years. Okay. It does surveys largely for corporates. And, you know, I think that uh, has a kind of credibility, actually. And they went and did these face-to-face -face interviews with people in the language of their choice with a randomly selected demographically representative sample. Of South Africans. All right. So you've established the credibility yeah. there. And I mean, Anthea Jeffrey's written some really interesting things about um, Interalia, uh, BEE, which I think have become uh, useful to, to many of us in trying to ascertain whether things are good, bad or ugly. So you've, you've established that credibility. What questions did you ask people in this survey? So the first question we asked is, what do you think is the major problem that is unresolved since 1994? Unprompted, you just say what you want to say. No list to pick mm -hmm. from. Say what you want to say. Fif over 50% of South Africans say unemployment. If you break that down by race, it's very much the same, 56% of black South Africans and so on. And just mm -hmm. note, the exact number 56%, don't read too closely into that. It could be that it's actually 51% or mm -hmm. 59%. You know, there's a margin of error. Sure. Okay. Uh, unemployment first, crime second, corruption third, uh, education, housing, water, these all come in. Um, and if you keep going down the list, at number 15, you find racism with 3%. Hmm. So it's a very small minority identified racism as one of the two major issues that they think is not being resolved now you, then you we, if you watched yeah. the news or if you were you were paying attention to the politicians you would think that race would be right up there maybe top five maybe even top three yeah i i really like uh, a grand old journalist who uh, was my writing mentor for many years rian milan mm -hmm. i wrote my traitor's heart he's he said to me when i first started in journalism he said the thing to know is that the rainbow nation is dead and the tombstone is the daily headline because the daily headline <laughs> declares South Africans hate each other. We're on the brink of a race war. White monopoly capital is dominating or black race nationalism is, uh, is, is crushing everything. Uh, racism is the big issue. That seems to be the daily story. That does not seem to be the daily experience of South Africans. So then 
uh, next question that I think is very interesting to try and explain that difference is, have you personally experienced any form of racism over the last five years? 80% say no. And 80% of black South Africans, 81% of black South Africans said no, 83%, 87% of colored South Africans said no, and similar figures for, for Asian and white South Africans. So I think that's part of, I mean, I think that's encouraging. Sure. Uh, clearly, when 20% of the population says that they have experienced in the last five years some personal uh, aspects of racism, that's a problem. But it's not the major problem it's made out to be on the mainstream media, in parliament, and so on. So then we said, okay, so it's, it's not nearly as big a problem as, as politicians and so on make it out to be, but is it a problem? Well, how do we solve this problem insofar as it's, a, it's, it's not the major problem? Mm-hmm. And we asked, with better education and more jobs, the present inequality between races will steadily disappear. Do you agree? 73% said yes. Only 11% disagreed and 15% uh, neither agreed nor disagreed. And uh, uh, going back to the racial breakdown, seventy over 70% agree that just with better education and more jobs, the present inequality between races will steadily disappear. And that's 72% amongst black South Africans, 80% amongst colored South Africans, 78% amongst Asian South Africans, 72% amongst white South Africans. Right. So again, what I take to be a very encouraging result, because clearly you have um, people sort of thinking that the non-racial path is is the right way to go. Okay. But just to be perfectly clear, we asked again, the races need each other for progress and there should be full opportunity for all. 71% agree with that. And that's an interesting finding because if you go back to 2000, uh, there was a famous survey where people were asked, do you think that apartheid was badly implemented, but it's basically a good idea? In other words, races shouldn't work together. People should separate and go mm-hmm. out their own way. And at that time, a majority agreed. And between then and now, a supermajority now disagree with that. Only 11% agree and 72% disagree with the thought that a, apartheid, that the good version of apartheid, if there can be <laughs> such a thing, is a good idea at all. Jesus. So I think that's, that's great. And then if I can do one more, just before uh, a, a further breakdown, mm-hmm. we said, what's the best way to improve lives? Because mm-hmm. this is still in the, in the level of values. Now we're thinking about policy. And here we did give a list. We said, here's a list of four things, and you choose one as the best way to improve lives in this country. Okay. First option, more jobs and better education. Second option, better service delivery. Mm-hmm. Third option, more BEE and affirmative action in employment. Fourth option, more land reform. Now, if we were asking parliament, they would, you would have a majority saying more land reform or more BEE, mm-hmm. some saying more service delivery, and I, some would say more jobs and better education. But the breakdown when you ask ordinary South Africans is 73% say more jobs and education are the best way to improve lives. 18% say better service delivery. And only 3% say more BEE. And only 4% say more land reform. So, okay, but Gabriel, I mean, it's this clear is, as day. Okay, so this, yeah. is, this is fascinating stuff. And I have no reason to, to doubt you've, you've broken it down nicely. You explained to us how you did the survey that you guys didn't even do it yourselves. It was independent. Um, these findings are interesting. But the, the people who are interested in critical race theory and the people who draft those headlines that are on the tombstone of South Africa's rainbow nation, those people will say, oh, but the way you phrased the questions, you know, they're going to find reasons to, to, to make it seem that you've prejudiced critical race theory. Can we just start? Because I think it's a good 
question here, and then I'm going to hand over to Pumi. But Duncan wants to know, what is the actual definition of critical race theory? Can you explain that to us and, and how in academic circles it's explained to students? Okay. I'm happy to do that. I'm sorry I'm disappearing from the no, screen. Okay. I we'll, just saw that worry. my laptop's about to die. Oh, shit. And so I have to plug it in. Okay. Yeah, I have the cable. Okay, no problem. This is great to watch. We uh, could see you in action. <laughs> All right. What's staying the, alive. The so pressure is what, on. The pressure's on. What is critical race theory? Yeah. So cr- critical race theory has, let's say, three key tenets. And the one key tenet is, the first key tenet, which I think is the most important, is that racism was this overt thing entrenched by governments through laws, and it was, you know, People known as ashamed to say in the public square that one race is uh, superior to another. This is true. Not this known, is, but this is basically we, true through human history, right? That no one's going to argue with that. No, certainly not me. And then they say what happens is uh, in South Africa and America and all around the world, as the laws become more non-racial, as uh, sort of rule under, you know, equality before the law becomes the norm. That doesn't mean racism goes away. It means it becomes insidious. But importantly, the key tenet is it doesn't decrease. It's not less of a problem. It's not less prevalent. In fact, it's everywhere. Everywhere that you look around, there is racism. You just have to put on your X-ray glasses to see it. And so the critical race theory answer to the problem of our polling is basically that black people have false consciousness. And white people have false consciousness. If they think they haven't personally experienced racism, that's just because they're too stupid to realize it. Hmm. If they think that the best way to improve lives is by better education and more jobs, that's just because they're too naive to appreciate that if you just grow the economy in something like a meritocratic way, you're always going to have white people on top and you're always going to have black people on the bottom. That's their, that's their supposition. And and here's one way that I could make sense. That of it. seems to me a little bit racist to, to imagine that if purely on merit you let people do their thing, that black people will end up at the bottom and white people end up at the top. That's, that's demonstrably untrue. Well, so exactly that. It's demonstrably untrue. It might have turned out to be the case. And I think this is an interesting – if you put yourself in the shoes of someone in the 1900s, mm. early ni- just before World War I, Right. When Europe was about to blow up into its own kind of race war, the Slavs against the Teutons, the Anglo-Saxons sure. and the Gales, and the Italian and, and there was a lot of eugenics so. going on and 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 hard Darwinism and yeah, sure, all that all that terrible stuff. Now you might have thought to yourself, you know, the whole world is is largely being ruled by divine right kings and queens. There's very few democracies, and where there are democracies, they've been pretty overtly racist. Mm-hmm. Maybe it turns out that human beings are like this genetically. We might not be different across races. But we might be like genetically racist. It might just be the case that it's very, very hard for human beings not to judge each other by the color of their skin. It's very easy for us to sort of um, go along with the with with the program that was around at the time. That, mm-hmm. that that's kind of baked into our nature. That we're just naturally, perversely, terribly racist beings. Mm-hmm. If that had turned out to be true, then I think critical race theory would be able to draw on a lot of evidence to support its conclusions, not just like anecdotes, which then are made to stand for everything, Mm -hmm. uh, but actual demonstrable data 
they'd be able to go out and survey people, for example, in a place like America or South Africa and find that most South Africans are like, no, dude, we don't, mustn't work together and, uh, and uh, jobs are not really the problem, racism the problem, because it's like we're naturally just racist. It turns out that that's not true. It turns out that human beings are pretty good at getting along. We're also really, really good at making little teams where we do have an us-them grouping. But those teams can be oriented on along a, a, a wide variety of axes. And in this regard, critical race theory has tried for many years to reject one of the most famous sociological uh, analyses done around the time that critical race theory came to bear in the 80s and 90s, where a bunch of school kids in America on a summer camp were, this was the experiment done on them. They said, look, you guys that have green, everyone was white. They said, you guys who have green and blue eyes, you're on one team. And you guys who have brown eyes, you're on another team. And your teams need to compete. And at the end of it all, you know, the best team is going to get a lack of prize. And let's see how that goes. And it becomes Lord of the Flies. Within five days, they had to terminate the experiment because the children's lives were at stake because right. they had become so vicious and cruel with each other. Mm -hmm. It is amazing how quickly you can program someone into a kind of us-them game where they become very, very nasty. The nicest thing about that study is that they did a follow-up a couple of years later and they found they did a follow-up a few months later and then another one a couple of years later. They found that all of those clicks and groups and whatever – that had been built through this artificial uh, team construct had then dissolved because kids just found it so natural to then make other groupings, the nerds versus the jocks or the ones who like this kind of music versus the ones who kind of like that music. It was very fluid. Okay. Uh, and, and various other studies have supported that result. So it turns out that we can reorient our, our core uh, patterns of loyalty. And that's one thing that I think our surveys over the last two decades in conjunct with others show is that South Africans really were more loyal to their race um, 25 years ago, largely. But the, the grand sure. project, yeah, the grand project of, of nation building, which is I think a word that has been so monopolized by a certain kind of political cabal and then discredited that, that no one uses it anymore. But it's actually happened. People have okay. found themselves more loyal to their country than their race, and to other groupings. For example, I, I, you know, I just want to hand to, I want to hand, uh, hand over to Pumi because there's a lot going on here, and I'm sure she's got a bunch of questions <laughs> and a bunch of comments to make. Um, so, Pums, over to you, and we can pick up again um, once once Pumi's had a go because I think uh, you know. Otherwise, it's so much info, Gabriel, that my head's about to explode. Yeah. Pums, <laughs> it's early in the morning. <laughs> I know. No, you know, I mean. For me, there were two things when, when I started reading the report yesterday, but, but I'll come to that. Let's talk about the definitions of critical race and, and exactly the example that you use. I think what we, we forget is that human beings, like all animals, are survivalists. <laughs> trying to survive. Hence, in the game, when there were two groupings and there was a clear competition that they had to go after, the kids were loyal, so loyal to their group that it became a lord of the flies. And it's like that in the world too. So in South Africa, it's like that. Is you're, you're loyal to the thing that's going to allow you to survive. And unfortunately, we have a, a, a divide in South Africa where survival is also very much skewed on, on racial lines. And that's a historical thing. So, and, and I'm asking myself as I, you know, read your thing is if racism is so low on the priority 
of people's survival instinct. What are you trying to solve? It's not a problem. What are you trying to solve? I love that question. What we want to solve at this stage in our history are the problems that are the most urgent, that make people the most desperate. So unemployment, to my mind, is the most urgent problem in South Africa. Most South Africans my age and younger don't have a job or not in education or training. I know a little bit about what that's like. I was unemployed for about six, nine months uh, in my mid-20s. I made a kind of career change, wanted to be a journalist, couldn't find a job, was working really hard, ended up doing manual labor to try and make ends meet that piece jobs didn't hold it together. And, and I was in a relatively cushy position. I know, especially what it does to young men, uh, the lack of a sense of self-worth, the lack of a sense that I can contribute something to society that is validated by getting paid. The sense that I don't actually belong here because I can't find the same kind of place as, as my peers that have risen up the ladder. It's a desperate thing, and that's not even to get into the effects of malnutrition, of a lack of safety if you're sleeping on the streets, and so on and so forth. So unemployment is the most urgent problem, to my mind. And then we can go down the list. We ask, That's why it's so important to ask South Africans, what do you think is the route to solve the most urgent problems? Do you think it's more BEE? Do you think it's more race-based policy? Or do you think it's better education for example, and the kind of structure that will increase the total jobs base, which to my mind is non-racial policy for the simple reason that every investor conference and analyst that we've spoken to says that it is a determined to investment. BE is a determined particularly to foreign direct investment and also at this stage to some local divestment because of the kind of association that it's come to have with corruption. We have also asked our respondents the very precise question, do you think in terms of education, because the, the problem of unemployment is directly tied to the fact that our schools have, our public school system has become the world's worst on a bang for buck basis, as the economists put it. It is the chief line item on the budget. We spend a quarter of all our national money on education, and yet we get terrible results. Something like four or 5% of students who started in grade one in 2008 finished with a matric pass in mathematics uh, 10, 11, 12 years later, whatever it is. That is not a good situation. No. So we asked people, what do you think is the best way to solve this problem? Do you think it's a voucher system where the government will give you the equivalent amount that they spend per student in public schools, and then you can take that and go to any school you find, any private school, and you can pay with that voucher to send your kid there? So it's not going to be like uh, Sinsteadians or Hilton kind of fee, but you'll have a thousand rand a month or two thousand rand a month, whatever it is, coming from the government for you to spend at a private school of your choice. So you don't have to leave your children there where the teachers don't come up to school on Monday and they leave on Pusa Thursday. You can send them wherever you want. <laughs> or more BEE. Yeah. 70, but the, 80% but of that's a bit of a said, we want the voucher But that's system. a bit of a false equivalence. I mean, like, you, you, you know. You've... The real problem is the real is the problem that we're trying to solve is the problem of poverty is the problem of unemployment is the problem of okay. poor education and it's our view that the way to solve that problem is through a system of programs we've laid this out actually in a another long policy document called eed economic empowerment for the disadvantaged we think that if you really go on a needs based basis and find people with real needs. You can then pragmatically meet those needs. 
South Africa is not the first country to be in the kind of disastrous situation that we're in. Yeah. South Korea, Ireland, in fact, most of Europe after World War II, countries have been in situations where they're poorer than us and they've had, where they've had higher inequality than us, where they've had worse literacy and education rates than us and so on and so forth. And they have solved those problems by addressing those problems. And we believe that if you do that here, okay. it will work just the same. In fact, we think it'll work better in part because we are such a fabulously interesting country. I All think right. that that the, aspect of it the, does have there's, an there's advantageous a lot, I, I don't think And po- we're very I don't encouraged Pumi, and heartened by the fact that most South Africans seem to agree with us. Um, Gabriel, I don't think Pumi's disagreeing with you about what our most urgent needs are, but I do think her question about race and why we're focused on it is important and interesting. So the, 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 the report is not called the biggest problems in South Africa. <laughs> ranked from 1 to 15. It's called Critical Race Theory and Race-Based Policy. So I want to just quickly go back to race for a second. It does seem like we've gone through an enormous shift in attitude in the world, not just in South Africa, but maybe South Africa's played a a large part in that. And correct me here, guys, if either of you think that I'm wrong or if I'm stretching a bit. The fact is, during my lifetime, racism has become so unpalatable in every quarter I do not know of anyone brave enough or stupid enough to be overtly racist in any public forum or even in private fora, for that matter. Certainly, I don't know everybody. Certainly, this is anecdotal. Yeah, many. Pums, I, I think there's an undersupply and an over-demand for racism if you look at kind of the things that the, me- the media are looking for. Like, I don't meet people on a daily basis, even on a monthly or week or year or annual basis, who are overt out-and-out racists because those people have been made, to use Mandela's words, the skunks of the world. You know, thanks mm. to social media, there's such an opprobrium to these people now, and rightly so. I think the whole attitude to racism has changed significantly, and we, we perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, but the inability to take in that hindsight over a period of time because our memories are useless, we don't appreciate just how far we've come. To, to take an overtly racist stance on anything these days is to end your career, to assign yourself to the moral low ground, and to lose friends, actual friends. It impacts enormously and in the best ways, I think, on people when they are overtly racist. They are, they are basically pariahs. And that we don't take enough uh, cognizance of. This is important, especially in a country like ours, where race was the defining characteristic of how people were treated and how people treated you for, for thousands of years, right? Hundreds, certainly, but maybe even thousands of years. It's amazing to see that now. And I think that's not without an enormous amount of effort. It's not without changes in policy. It's not without the evolution of the way we think about each other. And it's not without freedom in South Africa, which I think played its part in the international sphere when it comes to that. People like Nelson Mandela, people like uh, Barack Obama, those are the obvious ones to go for. But I think we've come a long way. In this country, it pleases me to know that race is like a 3% worry to most people. But your question still stands, Pums. Why then the focus on it? So I, I think that a nice old line is that generals, the most common mistake that generals in war make is that they fight the last war. And if you study a little bit of military history, you really do find that the Brits in the Anglo-Boer War, for example, they were fighting 
with the lessons that they learned in the 1870s, fighting in Afghanistan and whatnot. If you look at World War I, people were fighting with the lessons that they learned in the Boer War. And those ones who stuck to those problems then lost. In World War II, the poor French were completely flattened in six weeks. Why? Because they were still using World War I tactics during World War II. Yeah. This is not just a problem for generals. It's a kind of human problem. The easiest uh, battle to win is one that's already played out. So I think in large part what's happened in South Africa is that racism was the number one problem. Pretty much since this country's union in 1910 until somewhere uh, in the last three decades. And then it stopped being the same. Are you then not in the same situation? Here you have a 30-page report based on what you admit is a 3% problem. You've got a 30-page report on it. You, you, you know what I'm saying? You, you're in the same place. You, when you did your study and you mm-hmm. found that the biggest problem that people are, are, are talking about, have top of mind for them, is unemployment and safety and, 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 and number 15, is race, and yet you decide that the report you are going to put out at the end of it is going to be about race. Not only is it going to be about race, it is going to be titled Critical Race Theory. So is, you've is chosen that, the number 15 thing. Is that a marketing, no, is that a marketing decision? I mean, that because then that would explain it. If you, if, you, if you wanted people to pay attention to it, then I understand, but then you're playing the same game as the media. It's like clickbait. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, no. I really like this question. So I distinguish quite clearly between racism and race-based policy. That's one distinction. So you can have a country where no one's a racist, but the law is racist. The law says we've got to discriminate one against another. People who look like this need a leg up. People who look like that need to take a back seat. And that is the law in South Africa. And our president has promised that that is going to continue be, to be the law for as long as he's in charge. I also distinguish between racism and critical race theory, which is, on its own version, an ideological viewpoint, something which has been argued in the academy and which is then translated into policy, as has been the case in the U.S., where you sort of have vaccination programs, for example, that are trying to discriminate on the basis of race, where you have education programs that are being rolled out that are uh, basically asking for students to act in different ways according to their race. So to me, the law is its own entity. People are their own entity. It ought to be the case that the law reflects the best interests and values of the people. That's what democracy means. I remember when I was studying in America, a famous Princeton study came out, which argued that America is no longer a democracy. It is an oligarchy. And and the way that that argument was made was by surveying a thousand polls and looking at what Americans' values and preferences were along a wide variety of questions gun rights, abortion, uh, affirmative action, uh, health care, education, just the whole gamut. And looking, what are the values of Americans? What would they prefer? And what are their laws? And this study found 
that there was no relationship, that there was a zero effect relationship between what ordinary people wanted and what the laws were. How did they explain that? By reference to lobby groups, by reference to special interest groups, political capture. In other words, you can live in a country where the law doesn't reflect the values of the people because the law makers have been captured by big business and others. Mm -hmm. That seems very much to be the case in South Africa. I think it's very important to debate race-based policy. That is a big obstacle to economic growth. But you have a choice. But but as the Institute of Race Relations and your stated objective is, is to is to help foster better race relations, right? Amongst the people, it's the stated objective. And you have a choice. Mm-hmm. You can either shine a light on racism and what you term to be a race-based policy and what good it is not doing, or you could choose to shine a light, and by your own admission, you're saying when you asked people what could change race relations for the better, they, and, and education was one of them, and employment is another, and instead of choosing to shine a light on that and crafting policy around that, which would move us forward, you, 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 you're stuck at saying, you guys are doing this thing wrong, instead of saying, here is an alternative, and this is what we could be doing better. Okay, okay and, sorry, and- I, 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 I should have been more clear. We have hmm. crafted EED, em- Economic Empowerment for the Disadvantaged. We crafted that about 10 right. years ago. Guys, I'm just going to stop this. Uh, I'm going to stop this we- because I think we're in danger of talking about the IRR instead of talking about these findings or about South Africa. So I, I, yeah. I take Pumi's yeah. point and I, I'm in agreement with her about, you know, the, the marketing, the framing of this thing. But I do want to get to some of the, let's drill down into some of these things because I think that there are interesting subjects in here that perhaps South Africa would like to, to know more about. And there are things that have political uh, ramifications. Can we just for a moment turn away from the survey and look at some of the current sure. affairs, look at some of the stories in the news? Because I believe this this is, you know, the most useful thing about the burning platform. We we do learn new things like this report that you've just published. But occasionally we also need to make sense of the things that are going on around us and that the media are telling us about. So let's just quickly refer Pums. I know you're so bored with this, but the ANC <laughs> I mean, listen, guys, I I almost don't know what to say on a weekly basis because just when you think that the ANC can't shoot itself in another body part, it does. It finds a new place where it hasn't shot itself yet, and then it shoots itself there. So this week on Monday, Jacob Zuma went to court, and it turned into a a rally with him and and, uh, Biengeni and Ace and that silly Karl Niehaus. What do we make of the latest developments there. Is there anything new, Pums? Is there anything that we need to know? <laughs> there's, there's nothing new under the Jacob Zuma son. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the, so once again, we have Jacob Zuma standing up and saying, I'm ready to go to court. I'm ready to stand mm. trial. Mm-hmm. I'm ready at all. But in, in the meantime, right, I'm not willing to stand trial if... The prosecution is not who I think is the right person is because that's the section one one oh six I've come to understand is actually him um 
fighting the prosecutor's authority to be the prosecutor in this case. If it's not the prosecutor that's the problem, then it's the judge that's the problem, then it's the court that's the problem. But hey, Mm -hmm. I'm ready to stand trial. I'm ready to stand trial. I want my day in court. I I demand my day in court. This is what all of them say. Which, you know, and, and it's more of the same. It's, it's okay, a but what do you like? What do you make? Of how the... can I pass this back down the road, down the road, down the road, until well, probably until I'm dead. At yeah, his because age, he's probably hoping he, he can. <laughs> he doesn't want to be accountable. He for can these evade things. the law. So, Pums, until... what, what do you make of the coalition that's that's coalescing around him? I mean, we knew we knew that he and Ace were close because you know they were they were bosom buddies during his administration. <laughs> the Premier League was what kind of made it happen. But, but there are other people who are, who are creeping across and there are people who are leaving that coalition and moving across the Sororomoposa side of things. Is there anything surprising about that for you or not? Guys, a coalition of thieves making revolutionary sounds. A coalition of thieves All making right. revolutionary sounds. You know, radical economic transformation, making those sounds just as something to hide behind. Yeah. <laughs> To hide their thievery. That's what we are. Mm. Gabriel, anything to add on that before we move on? Yeah, I can't help myself. We asked our, 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 our survey respondents, uh, do you think all this talk of racism and colonialism is just a way for politicians to seek excuses for their own failures? Mm-hmm. And uh, a majority said yes. I do think that if there's one <laughs> thing to say in favor of Zuma, it's that uh, much like this trade unionist, this bitter trade unionist that you mentioned at the start of it all, <laughs> I think he does have some reason to feel unfairly treated. Mm. Uh, I don't think anyone can seriously argue that Zuma was alone or that it was just him and Ace or that it was just the few people that have been spotlighted in the media uh, that were corrupt. There's demonstrable prima facie evidence of corruption against more than half of the members of the National Executive Council of the ANC. And it does, to my mind, seem as if, and this is not a new development, over the last eight years or so, there's been a concerted effort to try and shift all of the blame onto one or two bad apples, then promise that we can get rid of those bad apples, and then everything will be good again. Uh, And from the perspective of one of those bad apples, it must feel kind of crappy to have stolen money with the next guy and the next guy and the next guy and then you are the one who's targeted and the other two flip to the Ramaphosa faction and are are kind of venerated or excused Uh, I don't think that's a legal argument but I do think that there's a kind of something going on. You know what they do have on their side? Take them down with you. Right. I completely agree. This is the the thing Pumps, so do you think that there are people yeah, there are people. There, there are probably Jacob you need Zuma. Need the prosecuting authority to help. Jacob Zuma has yes. been threatening. You need the prosecuting authority to offer immunity. So Jacob Zuma has <laughs> been threatening from the get-go that he knows information about this one and this one and this one. He knows where all the bodies are buried. Blah blah blah. And he probably does. But Madame then he must, Make he must it tell us who they right. are and let them all go down. But it's, but it's not up to him. A- any criminal, anyone who's facing criminal prosecution that has the ability to bring down a whole lot of other people, they, they're only one side of the hand clapping. You need two hands to clap. You also need an NPA to then come forward and say, yeah. look, if you don't do this, you know you're going to jail. NPA. And if you do turn states witness, then we will keep you out of jail. You can go and retire and kindle nicely. But mm. then we want a thousand people to go down. We want evidence. And if I, if Jacob Zuma 
By the way, Mark Data did a poll on this in 2017. And most South Africans thought that if Jacob Zuma turned state witness and tanked like a thousand uh, corrupt officials that are still in charge, they would be more than happy for him to sit pretty and uh, die, sit down and die in Nkandla uh, with his family around him. And I very much agree with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any, any axe to grind. I feel like he is a scapegoat for so many others. And, and Pumi and you are both right about that. But uh, please, the, the National Prosecuting Authority. I mean, Pums, there's another thing you and I are sick of Hello, talking about. Hello, Gareth. Aren't we sick Hello, of talking Gareth. about that? Shamila Batoy. If, if that name comes up anymore, this is the most irrelevant person in the universe. She's done absolutely sweet fuck all. You talk about two hands to clap. I think that there are people in this country who have been waiting to applaud her with bated breath. We mm. all had such high hopes. She's done mm. nothing. She is a complete mm. letdown in every way. Okay, so ANC's mm. off the menu. Let's move on. This is interesting. There have been in Bloemfontein this week, and I want to acknowledge for all our, our listeners in Bloemfontein what a shitty week they've had. The Mungo municipalities under administration this week, there are massive water problems, massive electricity problems. Service delivery is zero in that city at the moment. Um, there are also shops that just do not have any goods on the shelves. And how's the under-reporting on the, the absolute chaos that's ensued? Now I kind Since of Monday. I kind of wish we had Lieto on because he's in the free state and uh you know we had him on just a, a couple of weeks ago and he was saying like he's just he's in, in he doesn't even know what to say anymore about the free state it's such a complete disaster and this is this is wanton destruction by Ace Mahashule when he was premier that has completely eviscerated any kind any capability of service delivery in that province the people of the free state have so, had enough but this is the thing Gareth, and I've said this before, that the, the, the circus, the three-ring circus that is ACE and the ANC and, and, and actually is a distraction mm. because that's why I'm talking about the under-reporting of what's happened in the Free State mm -hmm. and what's happened in Mangawung and Bloemfontein over the past couple of days because everybody, everybody's in Peter Maritzburg. Everybody wants to cover that. Everybody wants to talk to, to Ace. Everybody wants to talk to Jacob Zuma. And we've got tweets and tweets and tweets. And every second headline is about what's being said by who and the prosecutor. Now we know what Section 106 is. Mm. You know? um, but is anybody talking about the kid that was shot dead? On Monday, no. in the protests. Uh, I mean, we we know we know about it. I'll give credit because I saw this on on the TV news. I saw it on ENCA, and I'm not giving that that, that channel a plug just because I've got a show on there. But that's where I saw it. <laughs> I don't see nearly yeah. as much reporting though. And Pumi's right. Like, what culpability do the media have in using mm -hmm. clickbait stories in only paying attention to the personality politics because they know that sells and they're in business as well? What culpability do they have? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a there's a crisis of faith in the mainstream media, I think, no, for that reason. Absolutely. <laughs> crisis of faith. Yeah. <laughs> I think people want to, people who, I mean, our jobs allow us the time. They afford us the time to dig deeper and to, to really cover a broader uh, ambit of, of news coverage. For, for people with other jobs who, who depend on an hour a day or whatever it is to, to kind of get a sense of, what, of, of what's going on that's really important. I've, I think a lot of people just feel like they're being let down, like they are living in a more and more shadowy world with, with little spotlights curating the information that they're supposed to attend to 
mm. to attend to mm. in order really to yeah sustain a commercial system but also to sustain a narrative and I, I do, yeah. I mean, I do think that uh, if, if uh, we haven't asked people, do you trust uh, the, the headline news? I suspect that most people would say no, and I think that lines up with what we have asked, where most people just seem to have a very different picture on a personal level of South Africa compared to what the headline outbreaks are. And I don't think that that's a good thing. I, I, I think that um, we have to. That's a problem that has to be solved. Societies that do well are societies that have a latent level of trust, which is potent and significant, so that people don't feel like they're navigating the space alone and like they have to, you know, it also makes it tempting to fall for silly conspiracy theories and yeah. and the worst kinds of... Uh, well, I'm glad Pumi brought this up because otherwise we, we would be talking about Jacob Zuma the whole way through this episode. Um, guys, I, 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 I am loath to go there, but it is the biggest internet... <laughs> it is the biggest international story... And if we ignored it, we would be in dereliction of duty. There is there is shit going down, as there always is in the Middle East. But it is, is flared up again. It is more partisan than ever in South Africa and in the world. It seems to me that people are, are, are dividing along all kinds of ideological lines, along all kinds of tribal lines, along all kinds of religious lines around this. It is more complex than I can ever remember it having been, although it's a perennial problem. Israel and Gaza, what's going on with Hamas, with Benjamin Netanyahu, it's complex. It's by no means a simple thing. And I am, I'm, I'm actually just not ready to talk about this, but we have to. Because if you talk about it, all it does is it gets you a huge amount of hate from the one side and a huge amount of love from the other, if you have that point of view. If you have the other point of view, it gets you a huge amount of hate from this side and a huge amount of love from the other. There's just no middle ground for anyone to understand this. Please, can either of you shed some light on things that we may have missed or help us to figure out a way to make sense of this and to have conversations that add value? Because I, I can't say anything without getting into trouble on this matter. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I doubt that any of us can. I, I think one thing to notice is that this does seem to be like the, the blue eyes, brown eyes thought experiment uh, writ mm. large or mm -hmm. sociological experiment writ large. It's like everyone has to be on red team or blue team. And if you if you don't belong nicely, if you try and straddle the lines, then you're also part of the problem. Uh, and I think that that itself is something to confront, to notice, and to try and sidestep, try and look for really universal standards of values. Um, that can help navigate the conversation. In, in, in my best attempt to do that, I find myself being on the side of Palestinians and of Israelis, not so much being on the side of Hamas. In fact, feeling like they are a major threat both to Palestinians and to Israelis. They are a terrorist organization. They do uh, not adhere to anything like the rule of law, uh, either outside or inside of war. Uh, they've got no respect for democracy or civil liberties. The Israeli leadership uh, is, is clearly there's blue water between that and Hamas. Uh, but the Israeli leadership also leaves a lot wanting. Uh, the, the scandals around Netanyahu, the inability of the Knesset to form a government in the last several years, and they keep having re-elections because they can't get it together, I think is a sign that most Israelis agree indicates that that their leadership is in a crisis situation as well um 
So at, at, at least that's kind of four points of similarity. I think that, <laughs> I think that, I think that the, the, the hardest thing for at least the position that I take, which I think is in some senses the most controversial, although it seems super obvious, is that my empathy for the Palestinians looks something like this. I think, Lord have mercy. The guys on the other side are launching targeted missiles at buildings around me, and they make some knock-drop effects to try and uh, conceal me from that. But look, people are still dying. Children are still dying. Sure. I could be one of them. Absolutely. But also, my own supposed leadership might kill me just as readily or use me as a human shield. So I'm damned on both sides. And right. I think that if one empathizes with that position, then the kind of geopolitical analysis that follows uh, is not going to seem one-sided in the way that, uh, that so much of this often does. Pums, but what, that's do, you, what my do you say? Weird view. I feel like Bibi has become like Jacob Zuma, indefensible. Mm. Mm. Indefensible. I mean, he's been unable to form a government in two years. He's got corruption charges hanging over him. And he's just making bad decisions, left, right, and center. He's become like Jacob Zuma. Um, and, you know, the, the situation there is it was bound to get to this. So everybody's been talking about Israel's Iron Dome. But actually, guys, there's so much weaponry so much weaponry in that Middle East that it's a tinderbox in any way. So yeah. Israel has gotten better, but Hamas has also got access to better weaponry too. So it's it's a shit show. It's a clusterfuck over there. <laughs> and there is <laughs> Gabriel. No, it's you're true. right. You're right. You know, um, I, I, all I want to add to that because and I, the, I don't. And it's so polarized. It's so but, polarized but because I, I don't know. People, people are so jealous of their people are so jealous of their hurts, right, and and their fears that they they cannot in open up their minds to what either side, what fears either side has, mm -hmm. what what real danger on either side, because they are so so jealous Emotional. of their position. Yeah. So jealous of their position that if you say anything, oh my God, it's pro, it's pro Palestinian. Therefore, it is Zionist. You know, if you say this, then you, it's not a binary. It's not a binary well, situation down there. It's I mean, not it's, a binary uh, situation. You know, to to go to Gabriel's point earlier, that you can both be empathetic and and let's rather use the word <laughs> compassionate. You can feel compassion for people who are suffering in Gaza. And you can also feel that Israel has the right to defend itself. Those are, those are not mutually exclusive positions. But unfortunately, if you express any inkling of support for one side or you show a little bit more feeling for one side in someone else's opinion than you do for the other, then you are immediately partisan. And there's no brooking that, that, that huge divide. There is also the question of Biden. And, you know, for a while now, the Middle East was improving. And I want to know whether you guys think any of this has to do with what's going on in America. We can't ignore America's role in the Middle East. Um, people who are anti-Israel say that America ferments this, that America gives all kinds of support, military, financial, and otherwise to Israel at the expense of all its neighbors. There are also people on the opposite side of that who say 
if Israel didn't have America's support, they wouldn't be able to defend themselves. What do you guys make of, of America's role in this? So if you, uh, there's a great report in the National Review which makes the argument that uh, Israel is no longer being sponsored by America because uh, like 90% of the money that America gives to Israel for defense, Israel has to spend on American arms. So this is really just America's way of funding itself. Israel has become rich enough that it can pay for its own military. And with the alliances that it started to form with the Sunni-led states like Saudi Arabia, it's no longer in the threatened position that it once was. So the, the, the aid, I'm not sure that it's real aid in some senses. In this sense, it is. Uh, we have a report, and you can, in, in the Business uh, t- uh, business Day, uh, Franz Crenier, the CEO of the IRR, writes about, amongst other things, the fact that the targeted missiles uh, might be, uh, that are imported from America, seem to be imported on a just-in-time basis, which is to say, uh, it's not clear that Congress is going to release more of those. Short of that, Israel, if it gets targeted, especially by Hezbollah in Lebanon, mm. which has at least 10 times more rockets than Hamas does in Gaza, their Iron Dome is going to take strain and they're going to have to wipe out the rocket launch sites. But short of those targeted guided missiles, they're going to have to use more conventional weapons, which are sure to cause more conventional deaths. That's a problem. The other problem is that Iran, the mullahs of of Tehran, have clearly been sponsoring terrorism both with Hamas and Hezbollah. They want instability in the in the region. They want to humiliate the Sunnis. They want uh, a sort of anti everyone to be conjoined again in an anti-Israeli stance in that region. And the biggest shift in American politics is that the Biden administration is trying once again to make a deal with Iran, which means they are less likely to censure any movements or support that Iran gives either to Hezbollah or Hamas on the ground. And uh, that puts Iran in a stronger position. And, and that puts Palestinians, in my view, in a weaker position, because it means that they are more likely to have rockets falling over their head, either from, as it were, their own side or from the other side, because the major nefarious actor in the region, Iran, now has a reason to feel bolder than it did a year ago. Uh, Pums, you get the last word for this episode of the Burning Platform. You want to you want to uh, wrap no. up the Middle East for us, or do you have anything to add to what Gabriel just said about the U.S. involvement? Dude, it, I stand on my word, and Gabriel's very succinct um, summary of of all of that is: it's a shit show, y'all, and people are unwilling, <laughs> unwilling to move from their positions of fear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are the what are the potential outcomes here, guys? Because either it's going to be all out war. I mean, if it's if it's all out war, as you say, if Hezbollah start joining in this fight and Israel feels right, it's now or never. And they press a couple of buttons that that really smoke uh, the northern borders. uh, Then we have we've we've got open war. And I Mm. think that it's fairly clear that that will be the most damaging for not only Israel's neighbors, but possibly for Israel itself. Although Israel, I suppose in international relations terms has nothing to lose anymore because most, no, of, the, most of the countries, most of, most Netanyahu. Of, no. that's the problem with Bibi Netanyahu. And, okay. and, and, right. and in particular with Is, Israel's growth towards something like non-racialism or, or, or non-religious affiliation as a defining factor in its politics, uh, Arab, uh, uh, Israelis. Let me say Muslim, uh, yeah, Arab-Israeli relations within Israel have been improving. For the first time, it was looking like the, the 
sort of leading Arab party was going to be formed, was going to be part of the ruling coalition. Mm -hmm. That seemed like a viable option. And I think a lot of people know about the number of Arabs that have entered the Supreme Court and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. That has been reversed. One, just by one, fifth, one fifth of Israel's population are, are Arab Israelis. Yes. And, and that's already been reversed. Those, that, that trust that I was talking about earlier, that trust has already been eroded seriously, including by Israeli uh, police, uh, I think, acting uh, badly, uh, but really by this uh, opening up of the conflict. And if it gets to a stage of all-out war, then I think that one of the saddest things from an Israeli perspective is going to be that neighbors don't trust each other again. And that uh, could lead to violence on a, on a greater scale. But even if it doesn't, it just undermines what that country needs to thrive, which is a kind of content of character judgment, one of another, where you take care of your neighbors, doesn't matter how they look or who they pray to, because you belong together. This is, this is, you live together and you must work together and love each other and go into the same parks. I mean, that sounds all very cushy and silly, but you, I, I was just in Emma Rentia Park uh, in, uh, yesterday. It's so nice. It's so nice to be in a part of South Africa which, which is super diverse and everyone's getting along and pushing their prams and flying their kites. That really is a kind of litmus test for the health of a society. And I think that is re that litmus test, apply that litmus test to Israel in a year. And it's going to have a very different outcome if there is all-out conflict. And if, it, if you get the wrong results on that test, I think political accountability, reason, response of government, and, and true liberty hmm. really do become impossible. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up there. And thank you. If we'd have avoided and ignored the question of Israel and Gaza, we would have been, um, we would have been making all the overtures to those people who say, oh, you're not talking about it. You're trying to avoid it. The fact is I am trying to avoid it. It doesn't lead to any positive moves on social media you end up becoming uh, polarized by by both sides in terms of, of what your position is other people put words in your mouth it's just horrible this is it for me talking about the middle east until we absolutely have to again because unfortunately the result for those of us who don't have a dog in the fight i've said this before in, in terms of my own position i do not have a dog in this fight the the problem is because it's so absolutely abysmal in terms of, of, of how partisan people become. Those of us who might want to have an opinion about this, those of us who might care about things there, are loath to enter the conversation. And therefore, I'm closing this chapter on, on uh, Israel and, and Gaza. I'm not interested in talking about it again on the show. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist, which is not helpful, I know. But I'm just not prepared to go there anymore. And thank you, Pumi and Gabriel. Your analysis of everything here this, this morning has been tremendously useful. And well done on that report, uh, Gabriel. It's inter very interesting stuff. Looking forward to reading it uh, as Pumi did. She's, she's really good about this. She read it last night. I'll read it today. Okay, guys. Have a happy day.